Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor, Romana and K9 as they respond to a distress signal and find themselves face to face, I suppose, with the creature from the pit. As usual, we'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and give our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team. It's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. But first, I suppose I shall introduce us to the creature from the pit with the story recap. Please do. Thank you. Part 1. In the midst of a jungle of the planet Chloris, a pair of women lead a group of masked and armoured men carrying a prisoner through the undergrowth. They arrive at a pit, and one of the group blows a horn, which is answered by a deep growl from within the pit. The sobbing prisoner looks up for mercy, but is thrown into the pit. Meanwhile, on the TARDIS, K-9 is reading the tales of Peter Rabbit to the Doctor in the console room. Romana comes in from cleaning, complaining about the junk that the Doctor has accrued throughout his travels. The Doctor denies it as junk, highlighting how useful some of the items have been throughout his adventures. She pulls out one item, which the Doctor agrees is junk, but K-9 says that it is actually an emergency transceiver, designed to send and receive distress signal. Romana says that the Doctor unplugged it because he didn't want to be summoned back to Gallifrey. He denies this but agrees to have it reinstalled. Once Romana puts it back in, a high-pitched whine fills the air as the TARDIS starts to shake violently, throwing them all to the floor, and the Doctor tells Romana to switch it off. The Doctor says it is defective, but K-9 says that he cannot detect any faults within the device. The Doctor then realises that they have landed and turns on the external view screen to see that they are in a clearing out of a jungle. He and Romana go outside to take a look around and they see a large cylinder of metal in the clearing. He and Romana go outside to take a look around, and they see several large pieces of a metal cylinder in the clearing. The Doctor examines them and says that they are the remnants of an egg. He tells the dubious Romana that the eggshell is actually alive, and is emitting a sound similar to the whine they heard inside the TARDIS. As he examines the shell, he notices a group of cactus-like seed pods slowly approaching him. The pods eventually attack him, and he calls out to Romana for help. However, he is approached by two masked men carrying swords, and another maskless man carrying a whip, which he uses to drive off the pods. The doctor thanks them, but the maskless man orders the others to kill him. However, one of the women from the pit appears and orders the doctor to be spared. The doctor thanks her and then asks her about the pods, and she tells him that they are called wolfweeds, and they are specially grown by someone called Lady Adrasta. She asks why he is in the place of death, saying anyone discovered there is instantly executed. She also asks about the TARDIS, saying that Romana told her it was theirs, and she orders the captured Romana to be brought forward. The doctor tries to rush into the TARDIS with Romana, but he is captured and put into a stock. The woman prepares to question him, but the maskless man says that the wolfweed sense danger. The woman, whose name is Carella, orders the prisoners to be brought with them as they move off into the jungle. As they make their way through the jungle, they are suddenly attacked by a group of hairy fur-clad men. In the scuffle, Romana is captured and the attackers flee with her. The maskless man, who is called the Huntsman, offers to pursue them, but Carella says they will all lead to another ambush. The author asks who they were, and Carella says that they are bandits, and that if they are lucky, then Romana will die quickly. In the bandit camp, Romana is brought to the central hut where one of the bandits, Torvin, who expressed frustration at her capture as she does not have any metal on her as therefore worthless to them. One of the bandits, Edu, says that due to her clothes she is most likely one of Lady Adrasta's ladies-in-waiting and could be worth a hefty ransom. Torvin says that they should kill her to prevent Lady Adrasta from seeking vengeance on them, but Edu and another bandit, Enu, say that they should let the whole tribe vote on what to do with her. Meanwhile, the Doctor is brought to a large stone building and is left under guard whilst Corella goes to fetch Lady Adrasta. The Doctor tries to escape by knocking out the guards after he tricked them into scratching his nose. 
However, he is stopped by Lady Adrasta, who removes the stock from him, then asks him about the metal object in the place of death. He tells her that it is an egg, but then asks about going to find Romana. Adrasta orders Corella to send for a squad of men and wolfweeds to find her. Back in the bandit camp, the group votes, and with the exception of one, they all vote to kill Romana. However, Romana points out the flaw in their logic by saying that killing her will only make Lady Adrasta angrier. Aina asks who she is, and Romana commends him for asking an intelligent question before revealing that she is a Time Lord. She orders him to untie her, and he does so, despite Torvin's protests. She commands the rest of the group to sit down, and they do so. She then takes out an electronic dog whistle for K9, and tricks them into blowing it by taking advantage of their lust for metal. A short while later, K9 appears, and she asks if they know where the Doctor is. Torvin tries to stop K9 from leaving, but the robot dog stuns him, and Romana assures the others that he will be alright in a while. Back in Adrasta's palace, she asks the doctor about the egg, saying that her men overheard him saying it is alive. He confirms this and says that the wine is emitting a scream of pain. She orders two men into the room and introduces them as Doran and Toland, two of her engineers. They express their belief that he is wrong about it being an egg, saying that the bird that laid it must be enormous. Doctor points out that other creatures lay eggs, and Toland agrees to this. Doran continues to doubt it, but Adrasta orders him to be brought away for his failure to find out the same information as the doctor did. The doctor asks where he's being taken to, and Adrasta orders the guards to bring him as well so he can see the price of failure. He is brought to the pit where he witnesses the execution ceremony. Suddenly K9 and Romana appear and they attempt to free him. However, K9 is swarmed by the wolfweeds and rendered immobile. Adrasta gloats that she now has both the Time Lords and says the doctor has no choice but to serve her. However, the doctor instead grabs a nearby rope and jumps into the pit. Part 2. Romana rushes to the pit and spots the doctor clinging to a crevice in the walls, but he signals for her to keep quiet. Adrasta asks Romana what she knows about the egg, but Romana says that she knows nothing about it and begs Adrasta to save the doctor. Adrasta says that she will not risk anyone's life to go into the pit after him. Romana tries to order K9 to attack, but she sees that he is covered in webs from the wolfweeds, rendering him immobile. Adrasta notices that he is made of metal and orders both K9 and Romana to be brought back to her palace. She comments on the loss of the doctor, kicking dirt into the pit as she does so. The dirt hits the doctor who is trying to climb down into the pit, knocking him from the wall and causing him to fall to the ground. Thankfully, he doesn't fall far and he starts calling out for Dorn and discovers him dead in the midst of a pile of other bodies in various states of decomposition. He then hears the growls of the creature approaching him and he makes his way down through the tunnels. He suddenly sees a green glow coming from one of the side tunnels and retreats into cover. He then watches as the creature, which is a large fleshy blob with a protruding tendril, make its way down the tunnel past him. He comes out when the coast is clear, but he is confronted by a man who indicates for him to keep quiet. In Adrasta's palace, Romana asks about the creature, but Adrasta says that no one that has encountered it has survived. She then says that she is sorry for the doctor's loss, and Romana asks why he would sacrifice himself like that. Adrasta says that the doctor probably knew that she would have to keep Romana alive if something were to happen to him, as she would be the only one who knew anything about the egg. Adrasta again asks her about the egg and slaps her when she attempts to divert her away from answering it. Romana agrees to cooperate just as K9 is brought in, and is horrified when Adrasta orders her men to take him apart for his valuable metal components. Romana agrees to answer all her questions so long as K9 is spared, saying that he is the information that she needs. Adrasta then says that she doesn't need Romana anymore, but Romana says that only she can operate K9, and is therefore needed to, in order to get the information Adrasta seeks. Back in the tunnels, the stranger takes the doctor to his lair and introduces himself as Organon, an astrologer who is currently out of favour due to an incorrect prediction he gave to Adrasta. The doctor asks what it was, and Organon says that she would have had visitors from beyond the stars, and when he couldn't provide more specific information, she had him thrown into the pit. The doctor asks about the creature, and Organon says that he has managed to avoid it thanks to all the tunnels in the mine that they are in. 
He explains to the doctor that the metal on the planet is a precious resource and that Adrasta had the only mine, therefore controlling the only source of metal on the planet. They hear the creatures growl from the distance, and Organon says that it is nearly 200 feet in length, but he assures the doctor that it is the only one on the entire planet. He starts to tell the doctor about the harsh conditions on the planet's surface, but stops when they see the creature trying to get into the alcove they are in. Meanwhile, at the bandit camp, Torvan recovers from his stunning and says that they need to leave quickly lest Adrasta come with her men and seize their treasure trove. Edo asks what they will do, and Torvan says that while Adrasta and her men attack the camp, they will raid her palace and take her supplies of metal. In Adrasta's palace, Romana removes the webs from K9 and quietly asks if he has enough energy to stun the guards so they can escape. At the same time, Corella voices her distrust of Romana and urges Adrasta to kill them, but Adrasta says that she will deal with them at the right time. Romana then says that she will give a demonstration of K9's powers and lifts them up. K9 then opens fires, killing one of the guards and causes Adrasta and Corella to take cover. However, Romana is quickly overpowered and Adrasta says that she will execute Romana if they try anything like that again. Back in the pit, the creature approaches the Doctor and Organon, but the astrologer drives it off by burning it with a candle. The Doctor says the creature's skin looked like a cerebral membrane and says that they should go take a closer look at it. After a few moments of hesitation, the reluctant Organon goes after the Doctor as they search for the creature. The Doctor says that he believes the creature was born in space and is currently trapped in the mine. In the palace, Adrasta says that the Doctor could still be alive and she orders Corella to accompany her, Romana and K9, and a squad of guards to go investigate the pit. She says that they can use K9 to kill the creature as they no longer need it now that they have access to the TARDIS, which they intend to use now Romana explain what it does. They enter the pit via an entrance leading from the palace and Adrasta sends a squad of guards to scout for the creature. The scout group discovers the creature at the same time as the Doctor and Organon do. One of the guards panics and shoots it with a crossbow and the Doctor goes forward to comfort it. However, the creature moves forward and completely engulfs the Doctor. Part 3 The guards retreat back up the tunnel where Organon is but ignore his pleas to help save the Doctor. Suddenly, a strange light emits from the creature, and the entrance to the tunnel is sealed off when a slab of metal materialises from thin air. Organon urges the guards to try and dislodge the slab so they can save the doctor. On the other side of the slab, the doctor wakes up after the creature retreats and knocks on the slab to let the others know that he is alive. One of the guards goes back to report to Adrasta's group. Whilst he is informing her of what happened, Romana tells K9 to be ready to make their move when they find the doctor. Corella approaches them, giving out to the guards for letting the two of them speak together, but she is cut off by Adrasta, who tells Romana about the fate of the Doctor. Adrasta asks if K9 is strong enough to break through the slab, but he says that he can't tell until he scans it to see what it's made of. Meanwhile, behind the slab, the Doctor investigates the nearby tunnels. He finds ores and nuggets of different metals that he says can't come from the mine, but before he can investigate any further, he is distracted by the sounds of the nearby creature. He approaches it carefully and shows it that he means no harm. He takes a closer look at it and tries to find a way to communicate with it. Suddenly the creature uses one of its tendrils to pin the doctor to the wall whilst it draws a design into a nearby rock. The pentagonal design is reminiscent of the one on the metal slab it created to seal the tunnel and the doctor remembers seeing a similar design upon the Drastis palace. At that moment, Torvan and the other bandits break into the palace after killing the sentries and begin to ransack it for metal. Edu spots a metal plate on the wall with the pentagonal design beginning to glow blue. He and Torben take it from the wall, but they are forced to flee when Enu says that there are more guards coming. They rush through the secret door that leads into the tunnels. They then take a quick break to examine their hall, but as they do so, the plate starts to glow again, causing Torben and Enu to fall into a trance as they reverently carry the plate through the tunnels. Down in the tunnel, the doctor says that he will retrieve the plate for the creature, but before he goes, he sees a number of small discs with the design on them, which he says are bits of eggshell. 
However, this angers the creature, and the doctor apologizes before leaving to retrieve the plate. Unbeknownst to the creature, the doctor placed one of the discs on his scarf, which he drags after him. Back on the other side of the slab, Romana and the others arrive to find Organon and the guards still trying to get through it. Adrasta is surprised to see Organon alive, but then berates her guards for failing to get through the slab. Organon tries to discreetly slip away, but he's noticed by Corella, who has the guards stop him. Adrasta then orders Romana to have Canine fire on the slab, and also demands that they kill the creature as well. Canine says that he only kills in self-defense, but Adrasta threatens him to do it or else. Canine blasts away at the slab, but after a while he says he needs to stop to preserve his power. The slab remains undamaged, and Canine says that it is a self-repairing material, which actually strengthens the slab with the more damage it has to repair. Adrasta grows frustrated at this and demands that Romana try to find a way through the slab. As she approaches it, the slab suddenly bursts apart and the doctor casually walks through the gap. Adrasta demands to know how he did it and he replies that he asked the creature nicely. She says the creature can't talk and the doctor asks how she seems to know so much about the creature and why she wants it dead so badly. She ignores him and orders Corella and the group of guards to take Romana and Canine to kill the creature. The doctor tries to object but she has the rest of her guards restrain him. After a while, with no further contact, the doctor says that something could have happened to the group, and he offers to see if they are okay. Instead, Adrasta orders Organon to go, and with no other options, he reluctantly starts to leave. Suddenly, Romana and the others return, and Corella says that they found no sign of the creature, and that it must have escaped down one of the other tunnels. Adrasta demands that they go back and hunt the creature down, but the doctor says that Adrasta is insane, and will only further anger the creature. Adrasta says that she wants it dead, accidentally addressing it by its proper name of Titonian. The doctor says that she is in over her head, but Adrasta says that she would have Corella kill Romana unless K9 is taken to kill the Titanian. The doctor says that Romana is presentable enough to be killed, and she says that she can't tidy herself up as she is holding K9. The doctor offers to help her and produces a mirror before telling K9 to open fire. Using the reflective surface of the mirror, K9 manages to stun the guards. Adrasta goes to flee through the tunnels with a stop by the sudden appearance of the Titanian. She begs the doctor to keep her safe, but he tells her that it is very angry at her after she trapped it in the pit and blocked off all its normal food supply. Adrasta then pulls out a knife and holds the doctor hostage, demanding that Romana kill the Titanian or she will kill the doctor. Suddenly, Torvin and Edu arrive carrying the plate, which they attach to the Titanian. Adrasta screams in horror as the Titanian starts to grow bigger. Part 4 Torvin and Edu fall out of their trance and flee when they see Adrasta. The doctor tells K9 to guard Adrasta whilst he tries to communicate with the Titanian, which replies in the doctor's voice. This shocks everyone, but the Titanian explains that its species do not have vocal cords of their own, and so must communicate with others whilst they touch the plate on their bodies. Romana asks why it is in the tunnels eating people, and both the doctor and the Titanian itself admonish her for her crude behaviour. The Titanian introduces itself as Erato, the high ambassador of the planet Titanus, and says that its species subsists on chlorophyll from plant and mineral salts. Erato says that it had come to Chloris on a trading mission when it was trapped by Adrasta. The doctor turns around to berate her, but he sees that the huntsman has arrived after having been summoned by Corella, who escaped earlier during the confusion, and a canine has been again covered by the wolf weeds. Adrasta orders the doctor to kill Erato, or she would have Organon killed. The doctor ignores this threat as he says that the fate of two planets are at risk and Adrasta orders the huntsman to set the wolf weeds on him. The doctor angrily gives out to her by saying that her petty desire for power has prevented the planet from progressing and that it is covered with vegetation, weeds and forests as a result. Adrasta orders the huntsman to obey her but instead he allows the doctor to speak. The doctor says that Titanus is a planet rich in metal ores but lacks chlorophyll required to sustain its inhabitants. 
He says that Arato arrived to broker a trade agreement between the two planets, but the first being it encountered was Adrasta, who realised that her monopoly on the limited metal resources would be ruined. He says Adrasta imprisoned Arato to maintain her control, but she denies it. The Doctor says that they can let Arato confirm it, but Adrasta says that it is a trick of the Doctor. He says that if it's a trick, then she can touch the plate and Arato can speak using her voice. She refuses, but the Huntsman calls the Wolfweeds to advance on her, and the Doctor grabs her, forcing her hand to touch the plate. Arata confirms the story, and the Huntsman orders the Wolfweeds to kill Adrasta, and Arato smothers her too, as well as absorbing the Wolfweeds. Arato thanks the Doctor for the meal, and again asks if he can be lifted out of the pit. The Doctor asks the Huntsman to organise it, and he agrees, thanking the Doctor for his help. However, the Doctor warily says that it may be too early to thank him. Up in Adrasta's palace, Organon gives out about the Doctor's dismissal of the threats on his life, but Romana says that the Doctor wouldn't have let anything happen to him. The Doctor comes in and says that Arato will soon be out of the pit, and they can then demand to know what information has been withholding. Romana is dubious of letting Arato out of the pit, saying that it may seek revenge for its imprisonment. Organon agrees, citing the number of people Arato killed in the pit, but the Doctor says that they were accidentally crushed as Arato tried to communicate with them. He then reveals that the bits of shell that they have discovered were remnants of Arato's spaceship. Romana says that the wine they detected coming from the shell segments could be a form of distress beacon, but says that Arato was so keen to get off the planet that it could mean something worse. She berates the Doctor for his blasé attitude towards their predicament, but she reveals that he is the photon drive for Arato's ship after having taken it from the pieces Arato was trying to protect in the pit. The Doctor says that he will only give it back to Arato once it confirms Chloris's safety. Unbeknownst to them, their conversation is overheard by Anu, who rushes back to report it to Torben. He says that if Arash was successfully brokers a trade deal, then the metal that they have control of will be worthless, and he suggests stealing the photon drive. However, Torben says that he can hear guards approaching, and says that they shouldn't be too greedy for another piece before leading the others back to the camp. As they leave, Corella, having listened to their conversation, emerges from a hiding place. She takes off after them just as the huntsman brings the doctor and Romana to a side door where Arato is waiting for them. Speaking through Romana, Arato reveals that its imprisonment was reported back to its homeworld via the ship's scanners. It informs them that its people have considered this an act of war and as a result would have launched a weaponized neutron star into the heart of Chloris's son. Arato says that given the time elapsed since its capture, they have less than 24 hours before the neutron star arrives. Arato says that there is no way to divert the weapon from its course. It then says that they will start to craft a new spaceship for itself, which will be ready within an hour. Meanwhile, back in the throne room, Organon is attacked by an unseen figure who takes the photon drive that the Doctor had given to him for safekeeping. The Doctor asks Arato if it can produce aluminium, and after it says that it can, he has K9 do a quick calculation. The Doctor says that if they can use the TARDIS to get close to the neutron star, they can surround it with the aluminium, which will minimise its gravitational field and allow them to pull it off course. Arato states their reluctance to help after their experience as a prisoner, but the Doctor says that it can't condemn the entire planet because of the actions of one bad person. Arato agrees and asks the Doctor what he would have done if they hadn't agreed to help, and the Doctor reveals his theft of the photon drive. He sends Romana to retrieve it, but she finds Organon unconscious. Meanwhile, at the bandit camp, Anu says that they should have taken the photon drive in order to secure their monopoly on the planet's metal, but Torben says that what he heard was nonsense. Suddenly, Torvin falls to the ground, having been stabbed in the back by Cruella. Before the others can attack her, she tells them that without her help, they would forever be poor and scrabbling around for scraps of metal. She tells them that she has hidden the photon drive, and together they can use it to barter for control of the metal supply that Arato will bring to the planet. 
Suddenly, the doctor bursts in and reveals the approach of the neutron star. The huntsman threatens to kill Carella unless she says where she's hidden the photon drive, but she says that if they kill her, then they will never find it. The doctor then calls in K9 and orders him to start destroying the bits of metal, forcing Corella to reveal the driver's location. Later, in the TARDIS, the Doctor, Romana and Arato, through K9, put their plan to action and divert the course of the neutron star. The strain proves too much for the TARDIS's control console, and it starts showering sparks as the neutron star begins to approach it. At the last moment, the Doctor manages to dematerialise the ship, and the weapon passes through it harmlessly through the space it previously occupied. Later, they return to Adrastus Palace, where they find the Huntsman and Algernon. The Doctor gives the Huntsman a document that has a draft of a trade agreement written by Arato. Organon sneaks a peek over his shoulder, and when the Huntsman asks if he knows what it is, he pretends to have known of its arrival due to his astrological observations. End of the story. So, before we go to the trivia section, one thing I would like to point out uh, is that, as of the recording of this, it is currently May the 4th. So, Trish, may the fourth be with you. May the fourth be with you too, buddy. <laughs> oh, you didn't give the Irish response of "and also with you." <laughs> but uh, I just like I was trying to think like there's absolutely no way that there will be any sort of Star Wars connection between this episode and obviously Star Wars. Not so, because as much as we love K nine, K nine, a mechanical object, was beaten by nature. <laughs> Slight reach, but I'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't care what anyone says I quite like the Battle of Endor I love it I think it's brilliant yeah okay slight tangent right because Paul loves when we go on a tangent and hates when we don't include them hmm. editor Paddy leave this in yeah slight tangent Jedi is my favourite and has always been my favourite and I think the whole Ewoks versus the Stormtroopers is really good so it's it's one of these things of where it's like I can I think the the better movie, the better film is Empire. My favorite one though is Jedi. Mm. Because Jedi was the first one I ever watched. Yeah, I I I've said it before, I watched it six five four because that was the way that it was shown to me, because my cousins are weird. Uh <laughs> but no. It's one of my favorite it's in my top ten movies of all time which I gave to Half Measures Podcast. It's got one of the best moments, I think, that is... Everyone talks about, you know, the Duel of the Fates, that sequence. Mm. I think the sequence where Luke shouts never and that beautiful panning shot of mm. him fighting Vader across the throne room floor and the music swells. Best cinematic moment of Star Wars across any of the movies. Mm. Um, and yes, I also love the Ewoks taking on the Stormtroopers. It is a fucking brilliant action sequence yeah and like people say like oh but like it's so cute and fuzzy i'm like yeah but if you pay close attention they also use their helmets as drums yeah they're also carnivores yeah like are we going to forget the fact that they were going to cook the fucking guys <laughs> earlier on in the movie um no but it, it, it is like that action sequence is so well done like every mm. single component of it because like there are parts of it and like you know i'm what was it i'm going on 36 i still choke up at the bit where um, when the, the one I, Ewok is running away and his friends after falling over and he tries to, to get, wake he, up he, he tries to get him to wake up yeah 
Oh, still no. gets me every fucking time. I don't yeah. care what anyone says. Yeah. yeah. So Jedi, is, as I said, while Empire is probably the better movie, I think Return of the Jedi is the one I enjoy more. Yeah. Like, everyone's like, you know, it's all right, it goes back to that, um, you know, Kevin Smith thing. I'm like, oh, but like, you know, Empire ends on such a down note, you know, and that's like, whatever. It's like, I don't like films that end on a depressing note. Oh. I like being happy at the yeah. end of a film. Yeah. <laughs> that was the thing, like, I used to really, like, I used to like watching Empire, like when I was a kid. But at the same time, it was the one I watched the least because of how dark and depressing it was. So as like a seven-year-old, while yeah, like the At-At battle on Hot is pretty fucking cool. Mm. And the whole Luke versus Vader fight scene is great on Bespin. It's still a very fucking dark movie. Yeah. I think the bit of Empire I probably would rewatch the most is probably the beginning. Like the first half an hour. Mm. Yeah, And then the Dagobah stuff. I can kind of take a leave. Um, on the way to Cloud City, I watch from a shipper perspective, and that's really about it. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of it, yeah, not really like that. It also I... has the one thing, like so. There's a number of pet peeves I have with media in general, as Paddy is aware. Mm. And one is women not getting credit for stuff. Mm. And sometimes it's like. How is it that Leia, who's a key member of the rebellion, didn't know that Han was a general? Why is she suddenly like demoted to shuttle crew member when she was a leader on Hoth? Mm-hmm. Have a whole fan canon as to why that is. But the second thing is like, name an iconic line from Return of the Jedi that gets quoted all the time. It's Easter eggs and everything. It is said by a man who looks like a fish. Oh yeah, it's a trap. Yeah. Who's the first person in Star Wars, like, in release order, to say it's a trap? It's Leia Leia? on Bespin, where she screams it repeatedly at Luke, saying, it's a trap. No, Luke, don't. It's a trap. Some people are like, you know, oh, yeah, it's a trap. It's a total Admiral Ackbar thing. I'm like, Leia said it first. No one ever remembers. Hmm. It pisses me off. Just because he's a giant fish. Yeah. No, like, whenever I think of Admiral Ackbar, now I think of his, um, you're thinking about eating me, aren't you? I'm thinking the same thing, motherfucker. (laughs) 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 Yeah, like, I think we're allowed to go on a small bit of a Star Wars tangent. Um, There we're here. Um, Yeah, like, and also as well, like, um, the whole thing about, you know, Stormtroopers not being able to shoot for shit. Leia actually says it in the movie. They let us go. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so. they did. <laughs> they let them go. They, no. There's two things in like favor of our heroes in Star Wars. One is mm. plot armor, mm-hmm. and because usually our heroes aren't seen in a bigger group, that plot armor is slightly skewed. Yeah. Like, because as people have pointed out, and even the whole how it should have ended, why didn't they just blow up Yavin Prime to get at Yavin Four? Yeah, right? So, plot armor Mm. is a thing. Right? But yes, in Star Wars, they let them escape so Mm -hmm. they could track them. That was the whole fucking point. In Empire, they're being slaughtered on off. Mm. (laughs) Like, absolutely fucking mangled. They have to retreat. 
even when he gets to the ground forces when the snow troopers come in like yeah they're they're fucked they're absolutely Hmm. fucked and in jedi we see it on endor like oh my god if they were taken down by teddy bears it's like yeah but how many ewoks do they slaughter Hmm. beforehand on a moon that they're not familiar with it's like yeah no they're good like you know plot armor Hmm. and the force and whatever Hmm. but like it's like the whole thing of like you know you know that t-shirt where it's like a bunch of stormtroopers shooting a bunch of red shirts stormtroopers oh, yeah. red shirts still die yeah. and it's like <laughs> and I, I think like then both of those th- things are incorrect <laughs> yeah because like someone proved like statistically red shirts survived longer in the teos the original series more awesome. than, yeah the blue shirts are yeah however uh yeah I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to watch after recording and I'm like it's a toss up between Jedi and Rogue One because I mm. love Rogue One. I will say Rogue One is probably my second favorite Star Wars movie. Oh, uh, so of the of the non of the non original trilogy movies, Rogue One is the best. Yes, agreed. Yeah, because its its aesthetic is so within keeping of the original trilogy. Mm. You can watch it back to back with A New Hope, mm. and like it really sells the the stakes of a new hope mm. like it really really does plus that final like that uh, the scarf battle sequence mm. is up there for me personally with one like it was you could put it up there with the final battle se- sequence from saving private ryan you could put it up with the battle sequences from the lord of the rings you could put it up with pretty much anything you care to name it is fantastic and i i am sad that we didn't get the beach part though you know that was in the trailers mm. Oh, from the original cut before they did the reshots. Yeah. Because mm. that looked epic. That looked amazing. Mm. Oh, it looked amazing. Um, and yeah. I know that, one, sorry, one com- one kind of common complaint, because we're talking about common complaints about mm. Rogue One was, oh, but the go- there was no character development. I didn't get attached to them. It's like, you know going in, like that, it, this is essentially a suicide mission. So like, I think that, I think there was enough character there, personally for me, like to latch onto, like that, K2SO and Chirush and the, um, the guy with the big fucking Bays. Repeating Bays, yeah. Their deaths hit for me. Oh, yeah. Like, you know? so, oh, no. Chirush walking across the thing, hmm. just being like, I am one with the Force and the Force is with me, gets me every time. Hmm. Every time. Um, the only thing in Rogue One I don't like hmm. because logistically it doesn't make sense to me hmm. is R2 and 3PO because they should have left the planet earlier to meet up with Leia they're a bit late leaving the planet to get to Leia for her to get to where she needs to be yeah but that is yeah. very pedantic hmm. you, 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 kinda... like, you could have had them earlier in the film hmm. for their nod yeah. and then fuck off well that's very very pedantic hmm. In terms of what Star Wars I'm going to watch tonight, I think I will watch the, I keep forgetting her name, so I'm going to say the Aunt Petunia sequence from Andor. The, as like, just, are you going to watch that sequence or are you going to watch the, the, the final episode? Depending on how we finish, I might just watch that sequence. Hmm. Because everything that happens after that sequence is fucking brilliant. Yeah. 
but depending on timing i might just watch yeah. mm -hmm. that like from when they start the procession yeah to when the fight kicks off mm -hmm. and your one makes her stupid fucking face which is just <laughs> yeah brilliant the, big, the biggest mistake they had was attacking b2 <laughs> yeah yeah no shit was gonna get real Bastards. anyway all right so circling back around there you yeah. go paul a tangent that we kept in for you yeah and any other star wars fans so, uh, to our discussion point, what trivia do you have for us this week? Cool. So, the air date for The Creature from the Pit is the 27th of October to the 17th of November, 1979. Our writer for this story is David Fisher. This is the third story written by David. We previously saw his work in The Stones of Blood and The Androids of Tara. And we'll see his work one more time in The Leisure Hive. Interestingly enough, David also wrote the novelization for the story. Which I always quite like when the writer does both. Mm. The director of the story is Christopher Barry. This is the last story directed by Christopher. His previous stories were The Daleks, where he did four of the however many episodes of The Daleks there were. Mm -hmm. The Rescue, The Romans, the Savages, Power of the Daleks, The Demons, The Mutants, Robot, and The Brain of Morbius. An excellent back catalogue for Christopher Barry, and this is his final one. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a there's some of our, I think, with the possible exception of the Savages, those are all really highly rated episodes by us. Yeah. Yeah. No, Christopher is, he's one of those directors where I see his name and I'm like, ooh, mm. looking forward to this. Um, the working title of the story was The Creature in the Pit, as opposed to The Creature from the Pit. And interestingly, this was actually the first story produced even though it wasn't the first that was broadcast. So this is actually Lala Ward's first story that she filmed as the Doctor's Companion. Hmm. David Fisher's original outline was concerned with Adrasta's attempts to claim the TARDIS for herself. And eventually K-9 take, takes her away in the TARDIS and then brings her back, looking kind of cowed and defeated at the story's <laughs> conclusion. <laughs> um, and then upon initially being thrown into the pit, the Doctor is attacked by Helen, who's a former member of Adrasta's team of engineers. And in the final episode, a battle fleet from Tythonus, which was spelt slightly differently at the time, um, arrives, threatens to destroy Chloris with a photon missile, and Aratu and the Doctor travel in Aratu's ship in order to um, reach the missile and disarm it. And um, Aratu actually weaves a spacesuit for the Doctor, which all, which all sounds really quite interesting. Mm. Um, but I can kind of understand how that wouldn't necessarily all work on screen. Yeah. Um, also in the original script, uh, Lady Adrasta was Queen Adrasta. And her name comes from To the Stars um, in Latin, which kind of makes sense that she wants to go to the TARDIS and whatever in the original script. Um, but it was Douglas Adams who changed it to Lady Adrasta. Hmm. A lot of people sort of considered the Doctor's solution to the problem of the neutron star, the idea of weaving a shell of aluminium around it as being really silly. Um, it was actually proposed to David Fisher by a member of the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. <laughs> um, interesting. Take that, science. Um, the BBC management had a major issue with Christopher Barry and with visual effects designer Matt Irvin. When it came to Arato, I don't know if Paddy got it across in his summary. Arato's appearance is quite amorphous. He's... He's just an amorphous blob with 
two very phallic appendages. <laughs> he looks like a testicle sack with penises attached. Yeah. Um. In fact, the phallic appearance of it uh, in the first episode was also an uncontrollable laughter in the studio <sighs> and meant that overnight they had to add a pair of pincers, which you know is on one of Raptor's appendages. He has like pincers, mm. but not on the one the doctor first interacts with. It, it, decisions were made. Hmm. Bad decisions were made. It was not a good design. I bet the prick in the cape is looking a lot very good right now. <laughs> um, Terry Walsh, who we've talked about several times before, who is a stunt uh, guy. This, this is his last story. Um, yeah, He appeared in various roles since 1966 and he was a fighter ranger and stunt double for both John Pertwee and Tom Baker. This is Terry's final story. Lala Ward wasn't particularly happy with the story. Like I said, it was the first one she filmed and she was still trying to work out how to play Romana. And something that I didn't know until this morning when I was doing the trivia notes, but spoiler comes up in my character notes. The script was written for Mary Tam's version of Romana, which Lala felt didn't help. Mm. And Lala even wears a right dress, which is a bit more Romana 1-esque. And apparently she loathed both her costume and her hair. So this is one of the downsides when we have changing companions is often scripts are written far enough in advance. They don't know who's going to be coming in. They don't know if the character is going to change. And because of the change with Romana wasn't scripted as a regeneration. Mm. I wonder if we've got any more scripts in the upcoming stories that were actually written for Mary Tam and not for Lala. Mm. Uh, Christopher Barry is said to have had differences of opinion to put it mildly, with both Tom Baker and Lala regarding their characters and dialogue during the filming of the story. This, plus the frequent technical problems, is what ultimately led to him leaving Doctor Who. Apparently, he said that Tom had gotten way worse compared to when they worked together previously on um, the Brain of Morbius, and he just found him unbearable. Um, And all the technical problems, the issues with props and costuming and whatever he just decided after the rumor many of the names chosen for the storyline are actually derived from greek mythology so lady adrasta was inspired by andromeda whose homeland was plagued by a gargantuan sea monster Uratu um, is named after a member of the group of goddesses called the muses uh, which is intentionally ironic because the mythological Uratu was the muse of erotic poetry and her name meant lovely Whereas, obviously, Aratu is just a big amorphous blob. Mm. Um, although the erotic part, we'll see. Um, yeah. The creature's homeworld of Tythonus um, comes from a prince of Troy who was granted immortality without the benefit of eternal youth. Um, which sort of makes sense. They have this planet with like ridiculous amounts of metal. They live very long lives, but they don't have access to the chlorophyll that they need in order to live those long lives. Mm-hmm. And Chloris um, was a minor flower goddess, um, and obviously the etymology is linked to the word chlorophyll, which is obviously the green pigment found in most vegetation. Mm. Um, before we go on to our cast, just a small little note uh, in regards to Torvin, the head of the bandits, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, inspired by Fagin from Oliver Twist. 
Yeah. Which I think is quite obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's true. He keeps calling them his beautiful boys and what yeah. have you got for Torvin, yeah. Yeah. So on to our cast. Um, the voice of K-9. Certain viewers will see it quite different. Uh, this is David Brierley. Um, he's going to voice K-9 for season 17 only. Um, apparently, the lovely, lovely John Leeson had gotten a little bit sick of the role. Um, mm. There wasn't really much in it for him, so he decided to leave. Um, though we will see him again, or hear him again, rather, in season 18. Uh, David was only brought in for, for one season. Um, David also appeared in other TV programs, including Zed Cars, Julia Bravo, and The Tripods, but K-9 is probably what he's most known for. Uh, David passed away in 2008. Lady Adrasta is played by Myra Francis. This is her only Doctor Who acting credit. Her non-Who credits include The Newcomers, The Ten Commandments, Survivors, Angels, The Sweeney, Crown Court, and Zed Cars. Myra passed away in 2021. I said 2021, very weird. 2021. <laughs> uh, Organon is played by Jeffrey Bailden. Uh, this is only on-screen credit, though he has also voiced alternate versions of the first Doctor in the big finish Doctor Who on Bout Stories, um, Old Morality, and A Storm of Angels. During the 1960s, he was actually also considered for the roles of both the first and second Doctors. Mm. Jeffrey's non-Who credits include The Merry Wives of Windsor, Dracula, Casino Royale, Zed Cars, The Adventures of Black Beauty, Space 1999, The Pink Panther Strikes Again, The Famous Five, and Rosal Gummidge. <laughs> Jeffrey passed away in 2017. As Corella, we have Eileen Way. This is the second and final television appearance for Eileen. Uh, she was also in An Unearthly Child. She was old mother in the sort of cave mm-hmm. time. Um, she was also in the film version of Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD. Yes, Paul, I still think that name is fucking stupid. <sighs> She was the old woman who gave Susan shelter and later turned her over to the Daleks. Mm. Uh, Eileen's non-who credits include Kidnapped, Zed Cars, again, a lot of Zed Cars this week. Um, Dixon of Doc Green, Warm Remembrance, Bergerac, and Inspector Morse. Eileen passed away in 1994. The Huntsman is played by David Telfer. He's the only Doctor Who acting credit for David. His non-who credits include The Whistleblower, Accused, Spender and the Stretch. As the previously mentioned Torben, we have John Bryans. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit, though he had been considered for the roles of Paul Clanton and Bat Masterson in The Gunfighters. Nice break there, John, not being associated with that one. Um, <laughs> his non-Who credits include For Whom the Bell Tolls, Nana and Blake Seven. John passed away in 1989. Edu is played by Edward Kelsey. It is the third and final appearance for Edward. We previously saw him in The Romans, where he was a slave buyer, and in The Power of the Daleks, where he was Resnal. His non-who credits include An Age of Kings, The Avengers, Zedkars, Softly Softly, Lady Miserab, and Doomwatch. Edward passed away in 2019. Lastly, as Anu, we have Tim Munro. This is the first of two appearances for Tim. We'll see him again in Terminus. And his non-who credits include Great Expectations, the Anatomist, which also stars Patrick Stewart, apparently. EastEnders, Judge John Deed, and Poirot. Hmm. Thus endeth the trivia. Thank you.
so we have done story summary check mm-hmm. we have done trivia check check we had random star wars tangent check check <laughs> now it's on to the meat and bones of the pod which is the character discussion so as per usual we will be discussing the doctor we'll be discussing the companions of romana and k9 and then we have prominent characters who i had organon and the huntsman i put a rattle in there as well uh, i suppose yeah he ends up being more of a prominent character mm-hmm. and then we have the villains of Adrasta and Carilla so uh, Paddy since you did you were going to say something no I was just going to say that the, the three boys uh, from the bandit camp while they do pop up they don't really there's not really a whole lot on offer by them I thought to more of no. the character discussion other than your man's like fake and that's really the only thing to say yeah pretty much it like um but yeah, so since you did socials this week, that means mm-hmm. you have the privilege of going first. So, Paddy, thoughts please on the Doctor in The Creature from the Pit. Um, I quite like the Doctor in this one, I think. Um, I think, I know, I, I quite like the Doctor in this one. Um, because he's curious about the creature, and he doesn't mm-hmm. treat it as an enemy. You know, it's like, it's not this whole thing, oh, it's a big monster, will we need to do whatever it's like no he he's fascinated by it and he wants to learn more about it mm. and that is what the only i like the doctor when he does that you know um i also liked how he interacted with adrasta because he treats adrasta as nothing more than a petty tyrant as opposed mm. to this big galactic evil persona like she's not a davros She's not yeah. a Suntaran, she's not a whatever. She's just a local warlord or whatever with delusions of mm. grandeur. And that's how he holds her in the threat level. Like he respects I like he doesn't take her for granted though because of all that she's accomplished. But he like he, he has like the appropriate threat level response to her, I thought. Mm. Um so yeah, like this is there's a lot of compassionate doctor and there's a lot of curious doctor here, and I I quite enjoy that. Now there's obviously the mischievous doctor as well with the whole, uh, you like you're planning on escaping. Well, I have your photon drive, <laughs> that 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 aspect of stuff, you know, like nego- negotiating with uh, all the aces up your sleeve. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and I, li- I liked his interactions with Organon as well, because it was like you would talk more about Organon you know, when it comes to the prominent character section, but he just continually takes the piss out of Organon because he's an astrologer, you know? He's just like, mm. completely fucking winding him up. And you know, slightly mean, but at the same time, I think Organon brings it on himself a bit. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that that's my, that my main thoughts on the Doctor in this one. Yeah, I agree with you for the most part. I enjoyed the Doctor in this one. I think there was a lot of really sort of classic, particularly classic fourth Doctor moments. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, reading Peter Rabbit with K-9 at the beginning. Yeah. Um, The whole, uh, like, the way he is with the Ratto, or Ratu, whatever one pronounces his name. Um, because he wants to communicate. He's like, cool, do, will telepathy work? Will mm-hmm. this work? 
you know, what do I do? Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And he recognizes very quickly that Aratu isn't this um, evil creature mm-hmm. that it's being portrayed as. On the flip side of that, though, the doctor does not trust blindly, which I like. Mm. He's sort of very cognizant of the fact that a there's something to do with this piece, right? So it ends up being the proton drive. But also, he's like, "Okay, you were treated really badly. There's another shoe around here somewhere that needs to fall. Mm-hmm. What is it?" And I like the fact that it's not a case of the doctor just being like, you know, Adrasta evil. Um, you know, uh, Eratu, good. Mm-hmm. Eratu leaves, and then they find out later on that actually Eratu was keeping something from them. Mm-hmm. The doctor's like, "Yeah, you know, the creature was down here for fifteen years or whatever. May not want to tell us everything, which, which I quite like. I like the fact that he wasn't overly trusting. Um, a couple of other small things that I quite liked. Uh, so the Minotaur was not just a myth." Yes. Second second uh regeneration you would find that very interesting, Doctor. Uh that's a story I would love to see, by the way. But like also don't forget the time monster. Yeah. Where the third the third doctor actually takes on the Minotaurs. Like, Come on, lads, get get the fucking story straight. <laughs> yeah. So um that's actually a story I would love to see. Particularly mm. with Tom's Doctor. Do yeah. you know? Um I'd love to see that. Um, also, for anyone who's like a Doctor Who fanfiction archive type person, A Teaspoon and an Open Mind is the name of the Doctor Who dedicated fanfiction site. Mm-hmm. And here it gets mentioned. Um, the only thing that I think you could sort of say was a negative, though it's very true to Tom's Doctor, mm-hmm. is when he's like, oh yeah, kill Organon, that's fine. We need to save the planet. We need to save this. Organon doesn't matter. Um, yeah. And I kind of wish we had him explaining his thinking to Organon as opposed to having to be Romana saying he wasn't really going to let them kill you and whatever, which mm-hmm. we as the audience know the doctor was never going to let them kill him. Yeah. But that's an explanation that should have come from him, I think, not mm-hmm. from Romana. Yeah. Which is probably the only negative about the doctor I have. I know. I'd, I'd agree. I'd agree because I think, like even that sequence, you know, because that's when, like, you know, oh, but Doctor, don't you see? Like, no, because so, Romana keeps asking the Doctor mm. questions, and he keeps responding yes in that typical Tom Baker, mm. you know, are you trying to achieve orgasm type fucking voice, <laughs> and like I feel like the Doctor was waiting to show off how clever he was by mm. like having the ace up the sleeve. That he didn't really take into account, yeah, maybe I should have, as you said, like, be the one to tell Organon I wasn't really going to let her kill you. Yeah. Um, But other than that, though, I think this is very, this is a very Tom Mm. story with a lot Mm -hmm. of very Tom, like, you know, knowing that Christopher Barry is the one who directed this and knowing that it's David Fisher who wrote it, who also did Stones of Blood and Androids of Tara. This is the Doctor we've seen in Robot, in The Brain of Morbius, in Stones of Blood, and in Androids of Tara. It's very consistent with the Doctor, with the fourth Doctor that we've seen before. Yeah. 
um, which I think is good. Um, I like that that was that was carried over, even if Christopher said that like they had challenges or whatever. Um, I think you know I've had a couple of concerns in the last two episodes with the Doctor being a little bit overly one way or whatever, mm-hmm. but this was yeah, this is top. Like, mm. yeah. Shall we move on to our companions? Yes. So, would you like to do the Lady Romana or the Bestest Boy? Um, I think we'll do Romana to start off with. Okay. So, there, you mentioned something there. Like, so, in the trivia, that it's made a point that I was about to make kind of up in the air. Mm. The point I was going to make was fuck off, Romana. You, you, Romana basically has this hoity toity thing where she says, like, you know, oh, but you were wandering around those caves crushing people, you know, eating people for 15 years. And it's like, no, like, fuck off. Seriously. You know that it was kept, you know that it was kept in there against its will. And you can see, like, that it spared the doctor. It's clearly an intelligent being. So, like, where, where's this, where's this high and mighty fucking attitude coming from? And which surprises me because, as you said, this is written by David Fisher. And David wrote Romana amazingly in Stones of Blood and Entrance of Tara. Mm. Like, uh, uh, we went back and forth in a very positive way about Mm. which was our best Romana one performance. Was it Androids or was it Stones? And you highlighted her compassion Mm. um, in that one. Here, like, uh, even like, you know, you said the fact it was written for Mary Tam. I think there's some stuff here, a lot of stuff here that's quite off. Like, it's almost like she regressed back to Rybus Operation Romana because of how she is so high-handed with the bandits. Like, mm. I, if I, I was picturing how Mary would do that, and she wouldn't be like this domineering headmistress. I think she'd be a bit more coy and subtle and almost doctor-like with how she handled them. But. Mm. And also, like there, there's just other times where, like, the characterization is is that Romana acts like she's the smartest one in in the entire fucking group. Yeah, and it like it doesn't sit right for me at all. Like, hmm. I did not enjoy Romana in this story. Like, while there's more agency on her part, absolutely, she's not a damsel in distress. Yeah, you know, she's constantly trying to figure out ways to, like, escape by, with the help of utilizing K-9 or whatever. I don't use this phrase lightly, but to me, she's a bit of a bitch in this episode. Hmm. Yeah, so a couple of things for me. First of all, I, too, would keep my K-9 whistle in my boobs. Hmm. Where is it going to put it? Um, immediately, like, by the end of episode one, I was like, this is much more Romano 1. Hmm. In comparison to the last two weeks. Yeah. The tone of her voice, the way she carries herself, is much more Romana 1 than it is Romana 2 of the last two weeks. Hmm. Which is explained by the fact that this was written for Romana 1. It was written for Mary Tam. And what's kind of sad is that, on the one hand, I kind of like this Romana more than the last two weeks. Hmm. But I would have liked it better if it was played by Mary Tam. Yeah. I think the problem is that, like, the direction by Christopher Barry and the acting choices by Lala Ward 
I think Mary Tam would have given the same lines, the same dialogue. I think Mary Tam would have played it different. Sure, absolutely. And it would have sat different. It still would have been because even in Android, Romana is still proud and she is still Mm. aware of her intelligence and she is still a bit full of herself and whatever. But in but it comes across in a different way. You know, it doesn't come across as school marmy. It doesn't come across yeah. as whatever. And I think also because Lala Ward is, she's so tiny mm. that if she kind of comes across like a fucking bitchy chihuahua. Yeah. Do you know? Could that have been fixed in the direction? Maybe. Could have been fixed in the acting. Yeah, I think it could have. Mm. Um, but there's a few other bits then where like her reaction to K9 being attacked the first time was very melodramatic like mm-hmm. way over the top oh no k9 like it's like okay lala is clearly uncomfortable mm-hmm. in this story which is very obvious um also her plan of escaping using k9 was shit mm. if you're going to use him as a gun it usually helps if you move while he's shooting standing still doesn't help you <laughs> Like, you know, and again, I wonder if Mary would have played it differently. And I feel kind of bad doing it that way, but given that Lala herself didn't even really like the story from a Mm. Romana perspective, I feel less bad about it. But I think this actually could have been, in many ways, the best Romana 2 story we've had so far. If either, if it had been played by Mary Tam, if it hadn't been a Romana 2 story, I think it would have been a very good Romana 1 story. (laughs) Yeah, no, it would have been a good Romana 1 story. But it's this is the thing. It's as you said, it was written for Romana One, but it's being acted by Romana Two before Romana Two even knows who Romana Two is. Yeah, and like that's why I was saying like I, you know, I, I, I do I like I feel kind of bad for like for the harshness of my comments, but I just don't like the portrayal in this story. Yeah, I like the potential in this story more so mm. than the last two weeks. Hmm. But knowing that the last two weeks were filmed after this one, I'm kind of like, okay, this was a blip. Mm. You know? Like, if this was her first story that was aired, mm. I'd maybe give it more of a pass. Mm. Because, like, oh, she's just getting into the character and we'll see how it develops. But the fact that this was filmed first but aired third, it's just weird. Because this is clearly not the decision that she's going to make for the character going forward, and we know that. Mm. So it just seems like a weird blip. Um... Also, like, we don't get a whole lot of intelligent Romana here. We have her acting like she's the most intelligent person in the room. Hmm. But we don't see her figuring anything out by herself. No. You know, bar how to get away from the bandits by mm-hmm. calling K-9. Okay, that, 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 was, that was good. You know, tricking them into using the whistle or whatever. That, that was fine. But after that, she's just captive for the rest of it. And repeatedly trying to get K9 to rescue her and it not working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so let's see. And I agree, she does come across as a bit um racist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, we'll get to it when we talk about Aratu. Like Aratu isn't this, you know, angelic being either. Like no. some of what she was saying is a legit fucking question. Do you mm. know? But the way she says it. Is like, okay, the doctor had a little bit of reservation. That was good. You've got gone to 90 for no fucking reason. Yeah. 
Like, mm. you need to take that from like a 90 down to like a 20. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> don't down. Like, like, she she acu- accuses as opposed to asking. That's the yeah. thing. Now is the time to ask the question, not to make an accusation. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, which is why I went, oh, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have K9. No. I'm sorry, David. I know that obviously you're doing your best, but no. You don't have the want. You don't have the the cadence, the character that made K9 K9 under John. I and like, like it, it absolutely, like, it sucks because when we're comparing Romanas and Doctors, they're they're different characters, you know, mm. they're different personalities and everything. This is still K nine Mark two, yeah. And unless you know laryngitis also has a side effect in robotic dogs that it completely changes their personality, like you just sound like I know it all. Like you, you, yeah. He comes across as very pompous. Yeah, like it's there's just like there's no warmth there. Yeah. Like everything that we've loved about K nine is completely absent here. I think part of it is because I agree, I completely agree with you. Um, no, K nine will always be the best boy, mm-hmm. inherently as the dog. Yeah. The dog is always great. Um, but the voice is what makes K9 more than just a tin dog. Mm-hmm. The voice is what makes him a character. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, the difference between, you know, if we're going back to Star Wars that we were talking about earlier, you know, R2-D2 isn't the same without the bips that, you know. Yeah, the whistles and everything. And the whistles and the size and whatever. When you compare it to any other R2 unit, what makes mm-hmm. R2 unique is his cadence and his intonation of his whistles and beeps. Yeah. Which, you know, that's what makes R2 R2, even though R2 doesn't speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I think K9 Mark II post-laryngitis, um, he just comes across as more pompous. I think part of the reason is that when John was doing the character, he was doing the robotic voice. Yeah, he was doing the pauses and the breaks, and the end of line, start mm-hmm. new line type of thing, almost as if K nine was like a typewriter typing out mm-hmm. something. Whereas, like David is just reading it like it's a script, like he's doing a voice of if K nine wasn't a robot dog and K nine was just a dog that talked. Maybe it'll be different. <laughs> do, do what this actually comes across to me, and I, and which is funny because he like he had, I, I from what I remember what your trivia points, he had nothing to do with the story in that regards. Hmm. This version of K nine sounds like it should be from like a Douglas Adams thing, like like Hitchhikers or something, like that weird Marvin esque type personality. Yeah, and like very much Douglas Adams is script editor at the time, so. Maybe he did have influence of how, certainly how the dialogue was written. Hmm. And maybe he gave some guidance in terms to David of how it should be portrayed. Um, but I think a lot of the warmth and 
the companionship with K9 is lost. Yeah. And like now this is like a strange scenario where like we have two companions, right? Hmm. And with parts and dialogue technically written for two different actors than the hmm. ones portraying them. And now I'm really curious as to see whether my enjoyment of this story, or at least my enjoyment of these two characters, would be different if they were portrayed by the people that was actually meant that they were written. Yeah. I like to give you a comparison, right? Mm-hmm. Um was it in Androids or was it in Armageddon Factor? I can't remember. Um K9 being melted down. Yeah, Armageddon Factor. K9 going closer and closer to the incinerator. Mm. And how heart-wrenching mm. John played that. K9 is upset and he's scared and he mm. wants help versus K9 here being taken down by a bunch of weeds. Mm-hmm. You don't... It's not that you don't care, but there wasn't the same emotional impact or even like K9 in Seeds of... or in Stones of Blood. Mm-hmm. When he's like, yo, leave me. Yo, yeah. my time is up. Go with me. <laughs> or whatever. Like, there's no heart yeah. to it. Here it just sounds like indignation as opposed to, you know, I failed to protect my family type thing, you know? Yeah, like here it's like, help, I am stuck. I cannot move. The weeds got me. Damn. Guard, put me on the floor. I was like, mm. fuck off, canine, stop me. Um, I like. I would have loved to have seen John do the Peter Rabbit bit. Mm. Do you know? Like that would have been cute. Yeah. No. Um. Which, which I feel bad. Like, and it's not meant to be a slight on on David because he was doing what he was told to do. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, this really does cement the fact that John Leeson is canine. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I don't think we can have K9 without him. Definitely not David Priorly, anyway. <laughs> like, there might be someone down the line who, you know, once John finally does decide to hang up the you know, the microphone, um, mm. someone else might come along. But it's really fucking big shoes to fill, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It, it, would, it would need to be comparable to Trout and stepping into Hartnut shoes. Yeah. Or, um, oh, what, what the fuck is his name? He does all the Dalek voices in Modern Who. Oh, fuck it. Oh, and I should know because... He also is, like, behind Big Finish. Yeah. Oh, Christ almighty. One second there. The, the one time it should fucking come up in my brain straight away, it doesn't. I'm going to kick myself when I read it. Uh, one second. Nick, Nicholas Briggs. Nicholas Briggs. Like, Nicholas Briggs taking over Dalek voices from the likes of Michael Wisher or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Like, Or sorry, yeah. uh, uh, fucking Julian Bleach taking over from Michael Wisher for Davros. Yeah, exactly. So the, 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 there's certain uh, recast, but particularly just from a voice-only perspective. I mm-hmm. think Nicholas Briggs doing Dalek voices mm-hmm. is a very good um, takeover from the likes um, of Michael Wisher, who I think... And Roy Skelton. And Roy Skelton, who, who were yeah. great at, at the voices. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Um, who knows, though? Maybe once David settles more into the role, we might see a difference. Mm-hmm. Never say never. 
Mm-hmm. We'll have to see next week. Um, but let's move on to our prominent characters. So we have the Huntsman, Organon, and Ivato. Which one would you like to do first? I'll do the Huntsman because I think, well, he has the least screen time of the two of them. I think it's what the Huntsman represents within the overall um, world that I find mm. interesting. So for me, I think he's an interesting character because he's part of Adrasta's inner circle. Like, you know, he's a lieutenant in her army or whatever it is. But he isn't corrupted by her greedy nature. The same, the same way that Corella, like Corella is also power hungry, you mm. know? And I have, I, like, I thought and stuff about Adrasta that like it's her impact on the world. Mm. But the Huntsman is like, I want to hear what he has to say because if it benefits this planet, I want to hear what it what he has to say, which I think is interesting because for someone that's part of a is within the inner circle of the ruling elite, to instead kind of embrace this commune style system that obviously mm-hmm. has like some form of you know like a, a, a government or whatever because he'll be the one in charge. But he's doing it from a more altruistic point of view, which is for the betterment of the rest of the people on the planet. Mm. And I, I think that's a kind of a cool character dynamic to have. Yeah, I'll admit, like, when I was watching the episode, obviously the Huntsman is in the first episode. I was like, okay. Mm. And we don't see him, really, for much of the rest of it. No. And I was kind of sitting there going, why the fuck is Paddy just going to say him when you didn't want to talk about Torben and, uh, and the bandits yeah. and stuff? And I was like, Okay. But then when he came back, I was like, oh, okay. Now I get why Paddy wants to discuss it. And to be honest, and this is sort of giving you a little bit of a, a way about how I see Adrasta. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, uh, uh, the Huntsman doesn't have a name. Yeah. He is the Huntsman. And do you know who he's like? He's like the Huntsman from mm. Snow White. Which is interesting because Adrasta is also completely evil queen. Mm. Uh, like evil stepmother evil queen type whatever um but he's like the huntsman from snow white in the sense that like he does his duty to his monarch to his reigning lord or lady or whatever mm-hmm. um he's someone who takes great pride in his work do you know he loves that he has these little fucking weed things so well trained or whatever and he's very proud of that fact do you know he sees the way they live as this is what's right and proper whereas the bandits are scavengers they assault people and they're not only are they other but they're an understandable to him negative other Mm -hmm. in the world that he perceives but he's by no means an evil person and he's by no Mm. means a blind person Mm. the minute he hears that Adrasta knows more than she's letting on, he's like, hold the fucking phone. Mm-hmm. I want to hear what this thing has to say. Shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. I want to hear what this thing has to say because if you've been lying this whole fucking time, you and I are going to have problems, lady. Yeah. Because I have done things on your bidding on the understanding that you were being open and honest with me. If you haven't been, then this causes a problem. And ultimately... I think he's the type of person who thought he was always working for the betterment of his people. Mm. And maybe he was a little bit blind to that. Maybe he was a little bit prejudiced or whatever. But ultimately, he thought that morally he was in the right. Yeah. And as soon as he realizes that, no, 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 morally he was in the wrong. He's like, no, I need to fix this. 
what do you need from me what can i do i'm here to help betterment of the people that's who i serve um which i think is great i think in terms of a transitionary leader for these people Mm. i think he's a brilliant choice do you know because he understood how the old regime worked but he also immediately recognized the flaw once it you know once the light was shone on it and was like, mm-hmm. that's not acceptable. What mm-hmm. do we do? Um, so yeah, like I said, I was surprised initially that you wanted to discuss him because I was like, there isn't really much to discuss. He had, he whip, he snaps a whip and weeds move. Yeah. Like, depending mm-hmm. what you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, but definitely his comeback at the end is very, very good. It makes him a very intriguing character. Yeah, like, because we talked about, um, characters that you know they don't do anything for plot but they they have an impact on the story as a whole like mm-hmm. so like um the character name escapes me now at the moment but um in the royal boss operation who helped yeah. give a much more like expanded background to this the other supporting characters that type of thing mm-hmm. um so yeah i quite like it and like he in a way he also kind of reminds me of bernard k's character from colony in space you know the um, mm. The geologist that eventually sides with the, the you know the colonists i yeah. think um but here yeah no it's that same type of thing where it's like well no well yeah i'm i'm working as part of the regime because that's what the regime is you haven't been fully upfront with me there's somebody here that can benefit everyone and i want to pursue it then we have organon yeah and to me, he's like a cross between Merlin, the Wizard of Oz, and C-3PO. Uh, <laughs> because, like, the C-3PO whole thing, because he's, he's indignation. He's like, oh, he was going to let me die. He was, uh, like, you know, the way Anthony Daniels is just fucking, you know, like, we're doomed, we're doomed. You know, we have an X amount of percentage chance of uh, surviving. Um, but the Wizard of Oz and Merlin, like Merlin because of his aesthetic, you know, I am the court astrologer and I mm. read the stars for all this type of stuff. But the Wizard of Oz is because, like, he's a bullshit artist. And and not because he doesn't believe in the astrological stuff. He really does. It's just that he wants to believe in his abilities so much that aren't there or aren't up to the level that he wants them to be. Mm. That he does kind of have to do a small bit of bu- bullshittery just to be t- be kept on, just to be credible enough to be kept on until his actual astrological observances come true, you know? Mm. Um, like at the very end, when, you know, the huntsman is going, my God, it's the, you know, it's the draft of the trade agreement. And he's there, like, very coyly peeking over his shoulder. And then when he turns around, he's, like, doing the meditation. It's like, it is a draft of an agreement. <laughs> um, I, 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 I liked his character because... He is pretty much just comic relief, but at the same time, he never grates on you mm. the, the way that some comic relief characters do, you know? Yeah. How about you? It's, so my first thing is that he's just this lovely, quirky Merlin yeah. <laughs> type character. Um, Reminded me a lot of like Merlin from the Disney Sword in the Stone. Yeah. Do you know? Very much that type with, like you said, a little bit of... 3PO thrown in and says, like, oh, I wouldn't go out there. Oh, I wouldn't go out there. Mm. Wait for me. <laughs> yeah. Don't leave me alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, literally, like, the second I was, there, I was like, so sweet, nothing bad better happened to him. I'm like, because I would have been so pissed mm. if he'd actually died. Um, I think the Wizard of Oz thing, though, 
because I think he actually is a good astrologer. The problem is astrology by its nature is very vague. Yeah. So like he predicted that Adrasto would be visited by beings from the stars, Mm -hmm. which is true. Mm -hmm. She was. Yeah. He didn't have that much detail. How the fuck was he meant to have any more detail? But I think the problem is that like because she then condemned him to the pit, I think he felt like he should have had more detail. Mm. And so he's trying to figure it out, but like, actually, yeah, he no like, he figures out the neutron star thing with no one having told him. Purely mm. by looking at the star charts, he figures it out that there's something fucking wrong. Mm-hmm. He is good at his job. It's just his job is that of an astrologer, yeah, which is inherently vague and flawed. <laughs> Do you know? Um, and. What I think sort of maybe leans into the Wizard of Oz nature of it is A, that bit at the end where he's like, oh, it's clearly a trade groomed. He's like, how do you know that? And he's like, well, you know. Yeah. It's like, you fucking said it out loud, you donkey. That's how I know. Um, but also because the doctor sort of takes the mickey out of him the whole time. Yeah. Because the doctor's not taking him seriously. We, the audience. We tend to not take him as seriously. But mm. if you compare him to like Herodotus in The Mask of Mandragora, Mm. Um, I think what Organon predicts is much more accurate because it's vague. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Yeah. Like if he tries to be very specific, he's more likely to be wrong. Do you know? Um, so I, I'd maybe contest the Wizard of Oz thing a little bit. Yeah, no. Like as you say, like you know, the Doctor doesn't take him seriously, so therefore the audience. We probably wouldn't take him seriously. Mm. Uh, I f- I actually forgot about how he predicted. Um, you know, did in the recap, he did predict that Adrasta would be visited from beings from beyond the stars, and he gets she gets visited by three of them because yeah. you know Arato and yeah, um, so like he's not wrong, do you no. know. And I think the problem is that like because we don't see him until like near the end working anything out by himself, we only have his Adrasta prediction. And then him saying, oh, in my horoscope this morning, it said I would meet someone from whatever. And I was like, well, that actually, sounds just fucking made up. We didn't um, see him actually doing his own horoscope to like, oh, I'm going to be visited by someone from whatever. Oh, holy fuck. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> uh, actually, you, because you mentioned the trivia, there's like, you know, some influences of Greek mythology on like, the names and stuff like that. Mm. Very keeping with Greek mythology, the misinterpretation of prophecies. Yes. You know, like heroes that are... Like for example, um, oh, Orpheus, you know, was mm. was told, you know, your father, you, you become greater than your Oedipus. father. Oh no, yeah, Orpheus is from, well, you know, well, yeah, Oedipus. Oedipus is the whole clear. Yeah, parting. Orpheus is the guy. Don't look back. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, no, Oedipus. Like the misinterpretation mm. of that, and it eventually does lead to one's own downfall and things like that. Yeah. Um, no, I was just thinking of you know the Daryl Breen sketch of like you know how do you tell the difference between astronomy and astrology? Mm. And it's like it's in the name like astronomy nami as in nom 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 Brian Cox is delicious <laughs> astrology logi log a unit of poo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then our final prominent character is the Iratu. creature from the pit, Aratu. Thoughts. So, I found that for me, 
and I, you know, which is why I'm very interested to get your thoughts on this. I found it very hard to get a peg on how I felt about Arato as a character. Mm. Because Arato only communicates with us through other people's voices. Mm. But because of the weird inflections that the actors are doing for their voiceover, it's very hard to determine, like, so, no, and it, and it could be because of the, the Arato's motivation. Like, so in the pit, mm. Arato seems to be much more affable, you know, because mm. he, you know, he uh, he's more, like, he's not stern, he's not snappy, he's not anything like that. And then once he comes out of the pit, and Roman is the one speaking, or he, Roman is the one he's speaking through, there's, it's a lot sterner. It's a lot mm. more clipped. And I'm wondering then, is that because of Arato's desire to get the fuck off the planet? Or is it poor direction on Christopher's part for the actors for how to read the dialogue? My read of it, and this is my thoughts on Arato in general, is Arato mm. is a very morally grey character. Mm. The Doctor makes the point. While in the pit, when he first is able to communicate with the Doctor and he has this full audience, Aratu's only thing that it wants is to get the fuck out. Yeah. It's been captive in here for 15 years. It wants to fucking leave. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Once it's out, it doesn't need them anymore. Mm -hmm. It can just, as far as it's concerned, obviously it doesn't know about the proton drive. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't need them anymore. And do you know what? He came to this planet. They treat him like shit. He just wants to fucking leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that, like, you know, if it wasn't for the proton drive, he would have said, fuck them. A star is going to hit them. I couldn't care less. They treated me like crap. I want to go home. Um, so I think that's intentional. Do you know, like in the pit, he was relying on their sympathy. He mm. needed them for something. Once he was out of the pit, he didn't need them for anything. And the doctor yeah. even says it. He's out of the pit now. Like, and that's why I wanted to run it by you because um, I, I, like, I recently like watched a clip of something on YouTube and there was a d- debate in the comments about uh, it was like a, one character is like reading between the lines of another character's dialogue. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, you've got such a good relationship that he's able to like, see this. And other people were like, no, no, he, like, he's, he's not seeing anything. He's just, you know, fucking completely taken aback by what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And I was like, here right the whole thing of like is it just the actual direction of the characters of how they're saying the dialogue or is there something else at play which is why like your insight there is the whole thing of affable basically going like hey you know can i please get out of the pit and once out of the pit it's like all right i'm getting the fuck out of here goodbye yeah exactly and what i think makes a even more morally gray is mm. and romanica makes this point um Romana says in quite a callous way, it's been going around eating people for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it raises an interesting moral quandary. Iratu had no way of communicating. And the doctor says, like, oh, it was just trying to communicate. After the first one, you know you can't communicate with them that way. So it was killing them and presumably feeding off of whatever small bits of chlorophyll were in their system to keep itself alive because it couldn't get any chlorophyll down there anyway do you know because it was relying on scraps being thrown down a hole but Romana makes the point Erato can live for 40,000 years 15 Mm. years is a blink of an eye 
And so it begs the question, again, maybe the first death was an accident. Mm-hmm. Trying to communicate. But once it became obvious that I can't communicate with them without the communication disc, did it have to kill them? And it's sort of like, is the thing of like, you're trapped in a cave or whatever, you know, massive earthquake, volcanic eruption, tsunami, whatever, stranded on a deserted island, no access to food. Do you kill the other people with you to survive? See, there's a there's a kind of there's a point then that I wanted to or it's not a counterpoint, but it's a point to bring up in relation to the time span, okay? Mm. Because you, you raised the point there that uh Romana says that these things can live sorry, canine says that these things can live for forty thousand years and Romana says that's like the blink of an eye. So he said after he ate or Erasmus said after at the wolf weeds that, that was the first substantial meal it had since it was trapped down there. Mm. So, and then you raise the point of, like, was it killing the people just to you know, feed off any chlorophyll, you know? Mm. So, what's the what's the comparison here? Is, like, is 50,000, 50, sorry, 15 years out of a 40,000 year lifespan, is that, like, you know, I, didn't, I, I haven't eaten anything since breakfast and it's midnight and mm. I'm fucking starving? Or is it legitimately... You know, like a camel, I'm coming off. I'm eating the fucking reserves in my hump. I need, like, I'll, I'll take anything mm. else I can get. You know, um, because like the first one, it's yeah. I, I would okay. I, I wouldn't even necessarily say the first one. I would, ne- I would, because we've no, sorry, we've no idea how many victims are down there. That's the mm. thing. We, we have no, we have no scale of reference. The first couple, you could put down to the urgent desire to speak and you know they were killed by accident Mm. then it's like the others then we don't know like were they all crushed like were they all killed by a rattle because Mm. again we're just assuming that a rattle killed them what's to say that they saw it panicked and fell down a mine shaft or fucking took a header on something you Mm. know it's Romana's assuming that a rat will kill them all. And Adrasta has built up this legend of this creature in this pit that I will throw you into. No, yeah. this, no, no. Like, again, like, I agree that a rat is a morally grey character because, as Dr. pointed out, are you really going to hold an entire planet's worth of population accountable for one person's actions? Yeah. So I was going to do a quick thing here, right? So 15 yeah. divided by... 40,000 is not point, not, 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 375. Okay, so if we then do, let's say, average human lifespan, 80 years. Yeah. Times not point, not, not, 375. Let me see a not. Is 0.03 years, so... Eleven days. All right. Okay. Give or take. Mm-hmm. So if we're now, to a huge, a rat who has no, long, no idea how long it's going to be down there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, my feeling was that Adrasta has been using the pit as a killing field for fifteen mm-hmm. years. 
And okay, we'll assume, even if we assumed that, you know, they used it once a quarter, four times a year, right? Mm-hmm. So that's 60 people. Say half of them break their legs and die on the fall. Back down to 30 people. Yeah. That's still 30 people that this creature could have yeah. killed and absorbed nutrients from. I think this is a this is an absolute first. We've used maths to determine a character's alignment for the fucking course of the podcast. Well, like I said, I think the character is very clearly morally grey. Yeah. From the off. Was the mm. character mistreated? Yes. Yeah. Is what was done to him horrific? Yes. Did he potentially do horrific things in return? Also, yes. Mm. And did he, was he intending to condemn an entire planet for the work oh, of yes. one woman? Yes. Yes. He absolutely was. 100%. Even when he saw the others, like the huntsman, standing up for him, mm. he still was perfectly happy. Like, oh, will you please let me out of the pit? Okay, my the pit. Bye, bitches. <laughs> By the way, you're going to be dead tomorrow. Just FYI. Oh. No? Um, and, and then it begs the question, is telling them that piece of information, <laughs> was that a dick move? <laughs> was it meant to be like, hey, heads up, you're going to die tomorrow. It's like in The Simpsons. Mm. Like, I'm not one for speeches, but you're all screwed. Goodbye. <laughs> So, Arato, like, you know, toying very closely to that villain line. Yeah, like, yeah. a bit much, like. Mm. Um, but I think as a, we've sort of gone on for quite a while about this, I think as a character, very mm. interesting. Yeah. Design-wise, completely fucking shocking. But as a character, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like, going all the way back to your original question. I do wonder how much of the nature of the person whose voice Arato is using is reflective in how Arato communicates. Mm-hmm. You know, we were saying Romana is kind of full of herself. Mm-hmm. So Arato coming across as more pompous and whatever, maybe that's just because it's using Romana. We don't know. Um, but overall, very, very interesting. And I guarantee you someone's going to come at us like, we're interested, the math's wrong. Fuck off. Um. Because <laughs> uh, like, we could go on like forever about that whole fucking thing. Because like, yeah, well, like, we're comparing his like um, food intake to that of a human. Like what if like, you're like a snake or a whatever. Like, you know, they can go over mm. fucking... It's like, no, oh, we're going too far into the weeds on this one. <laughs> um, so, on to the villains. Yes. So we have Corella and Adrasta. And Corella is is a typical toady who follows orders and throws their weight around uh because of their position within like the inner circle. But I like how they're only willing to make a grasp for power once the leader has been confirmed to be out of the picture permanently. Not because, you know, oh they're wounded or they're in prison right like that. It's like, no. Once she's dead and buried, then I'll make my play. Yeah. I think, for me, Corella is a sort of stereotypical witch woman. Mm. Do you know? She has that look about her. <laughs> um, And, like, we were saying, like, the Huntsman is a morally true character. 
who mm. was working on inaccurate information. Gorilla is a morally fuck you character. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? She has no morals. Mm. Do you know what I mean? She you know, loves the fact that her position allows her to wield power over others. She loves the fact that she gets to kill people off. And mm. the fact that the younger model is now dead. Well, mm. I'm just going to take over. Thanks very much. Bye. Yeah. Do you know? Um, and, but it's also like combined with a level of stupid because like, but the plan is going to be destroyed tomorrow. But I'll have all the power. Like, but but the planet is going to be destroyed tomorrow. Mm. Like, <laughs> hello. You heard our conversation where you're not actually listening. <laughs> it's kind of like um, IW Eldred, King of Nothing. You know, because yeah. you fuck, you burnt your own world to the ground. Exactly. Exactly. But not as cool. Not as cool as Eldred. Mm. That's the only comparison we'll make to Eldred for this. I do wonder, like, how many plans Corella had in her mind on how she could get rid of Adrasta. Like, how many, you know, assassination attempts that she's already planned out in advance. Mm. <laughs> and only the fact that Adrasta would never, like, because, you know, like, when they're going into the pit from, like, Adrasta's yeah. throne room or whatever, she's like, Corella, you next. And Corella's kind of like, oh, for fuck's sake. And Jeff's like, yeah, I'm never going to let you stab me in the back. Yeah, I sleep with one eye open the whole time, bitch. Yeah. So I suppose that brings us to the lady herself. Mm. And I quite like Adrasta as a villain. I think she's very interesting. I do too. I do too. Um, I think she hits everything that a good villain should be. Um, because like she's ruthless, but she's cunning. And she has this, she exudes this aura of power because, like, her entire entourage, her entire army is made up of men. And, like, so this is, she's kind of like, she has created this sort of matriarchal society where, like, the women are the ones in power, mm. you know? Um, and, like, it takes. Like it, it takes a from what we've seen in other media, it takes a very fucking strong-willed individual to do that, you know, mm. to create this little empire from nothing, and like she's completely enslaved the everyone on the planet to thinking that she holds all the power, and she has also seemingly deterred any idea of any type of a coup against her from her own inner circle, like as you said. Like, how many plans does Corella come up with to try and bump her off? And Corella still hasn't made a move yet because it's the whole, I suppose, if you shoot at the devil, you best not miss. Hmm. So, and like, I the only thing that was, it's not, even, it's not even anything negative about Adrasta. Like, she gets her comeuppance in a very, I suppose, poetic way, which is Arato's whole thing of like, you know, you made me into this monster, well, I might as well be the monster you made me. Hmm. Um, the involvement of, like, I, I can't believe I haven't said it till now, I think the wolfweeds were fucking stupid. They were ridiculous. Like, they're basically, it's, it's, like... They're, they're lint ball tumbleweeds that are driven on by a whip. Yeah. They're 
fucking stupid. Like, she has guards carrying Claymore swords. And these things are the thing are the ones that fucking terrify people. They're fucking stupid, like. Uh, I suppose all the budget was spent on the Arato prop. So, like, yeah, like she gets she gets felled by a creature of her own design. Hmm. And like she 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 is a mastermind and definitely one of the strongest villains we've seen in the while, I think. Yeah, I'd agree. I think for me, Adrasta is kind of like I said, she's a bit like a Disney villain in the sense of like a Disney animated mm-hmm. villain. Very much like the queen from Snow White. Um, you know, her obsession with having all of the metals and keeping mm-hmm. that monopoly the way she has this retinue around her you know even like she has the communication device mounted behind her almost like mm. the magic mirror do you mm. know um and you know that is very compelling what's even more compelling is the fact that she's not just a brute force person she's not just like i have metal Therefore, I will hire people to be my brute force. She's very intelligent. Mm-hmm. And she values intelligence. She has engineers. She has scientists working for her. And she respects them to a degree. Until she doesn't think that they have value to her anymore. And then fuck them. They're caught. You know, yeah. So long as you're performing and adding value, she thinks you're fucking brilliant. You're fucking business. Mm-hmm. She's very open-minded. Though still a little bit restrictive just because of where she's from or whatever. Mm-hmm. But she's very well-rounded. Because mm-hmm. she's also violent as hell. Like, we haven't talked about it. She smacks Romana across the face. Oh, yeah. Like, proper, like, paint brushes her. Yeah. And, like, she is such, like, the evil queen, the evil stepmother. Mm. Like, she's plucked right out of a fairy tale. Um, But with this understanding of science mm-hmm. of metallurgy of like when she finds out the TARDIS can go in time and space she's just like how can I use this mm. to my advantage and the only thing that really trips her off is the fact that I don't think she knows how to deal with someone like the doctor his frivolity his way of being Mm. is not something she's used to which is why she trips up mm-hmm. and you know he gets her flustered to the point where she lets out that she knows more about the creature than she may be let on mm-hmm. and like you know if the doctor in fairness if it was just romana she probably would have gotten away with it yeah because it, it's um you know like the huntsman never would have turned on her because she never would have tripped up and fumbled information that she's been holding secret for 15 years yeah because like um it kind of reminds you do you remember in destiny of the daleks the whole thing of the two supercomputers that constantly match each other's wits because of their logical thinking mm. first one that starts thinking logically they're the winner so yeah. here it's like a case of like i she can go see the whole thing of like well i can see every move you're going to make five steps ahead and it's like all right well you know what if i choose not to move what happens then yeah um and it's it's kind of why I think that Organon, you know, like I said, I think he actually was a good astrologer mm. because 
he predicted she was going to encounter a being from the stars. Hmm. And as soon as she fucking did, she's like, fuck. I need to get rid of this guy. He knows too much. He can. He may not even realize what he knows, but he knows too much. I have to get rid of him. Hmm. So, like, she may say stuff like, oh, you didn't provide me enough information. You're shit at your job. Her thing is, he provided too much information in the little bit that he had. And therefore, had to be gotten rid of. Caught him, got rid of him. He can ruin the whole plan. He has mm. got to go. Um. So yeah, I think in terms of a standalone planet-side villain, she's probably the most well-rounded one we've had in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I said, she doesn't compete at the level of like a Davros or whatever, just because mm-hmm. she's a local villain. Mm-hmm. But like, she's one of the best local villains we've had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the entire time. Like, who she actually reminds me of in a way is actually Hilda Winters. Yeah, do you know? Like, in mm. the way she carries herself and the way she talks and whatever, she she is very Hilda Winters esque. Which again, Christopher directed Robot, so mm-hmm. you know, there's a little bit of callback there with uh, that. I think the the only difference between Hilda Winters and Adrasta is that just from my perspective and also from my memory, Hilda Winters bases her power off the inventions and stuff that everyone else is that is for, like that is getting done. Whereas Adrasta, there is an element of self madeness to her whole thing. Yeah, I mean I yeah. would see or, Hilda Winters like Hilda Winters is a program manager. Who doesn't do the day to day job? <laughs> yeah, like and like, like I like as I said, I really enjoyed Hilda Winters. Like mm. Jesus Christ, the one girl on my skin, I wanted to fucking just uppercut her to the moon. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, yeah, I, I I can see the comparison. All right, yeah. And lastly, one of the things that I really like about Adrasta is that she's not overly sexualized. No, do you know, there's no mention made of a Lord Adrasta. There's no. Mm-hmm hint of a relationship between her and the huntsman there's mm-hmm. no nothing like she's a very beautiful woman mm. tall statuesque you know young she's very young yeah um but it's, there's no mention of it. it but it's that kind of scary sexy type thing the, the whole yeah. thing of where it's like you know you know if you were to spend the night with her you could end up being dead by the morning yeah yeah. yeah, but I like the fact that they don't... They don't play on it. They, it's they don't, just don't play, enti- there's, no, there's no mention made of the fact that she's a woman. Yeah, it's entirely upon like your own insight into mm. that type of thing, you know? Yeah. But yeah, she would break you. Yeah. <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah. So... We have reached the end of another episode. And we have. As always. Mm-hmm, with a lot more Star Wars references than I thought we, we potentially thought <laughs> we were going to make with this one. Um, but as always, we now come to the part where we each give our the story a ranking out of five. Because uh, I did the socials, I'll go first. And I'll admit, after our conversation, this one has become a small bit tougher to rank. Mm. Because... Like, there are a lot of interesting components to this story. There, there really are. But I think that's just it. They're components. Mm. Because the story itself is kind of boring. Mm. 
Um, like I watched some of it last week, but then we had to, uh, we weren't able to record last week. Uh, for everyone listening, apologies between work illnesses and civic duty. We have been on a small bit of a delay. We really do apologize, and we thank you for your continual um listening of the show. We really do yeah. appreciate it. I had jury duty last week, so yeah, uh, which is a very draining experience. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I watched some of it last week, and I finished it this week, but I rewatched it again, you know, mm. just to kind of free from it or some so, so of the characters or, you know, get new insights into stuff. And that, my appreciation of the Huntsman and Adrasta definitely increased with the rewatch, I think. Mm. And like, and I've, I've talked about it before where like, where, you know, I might leave, I, leave, I do the, the, the recap, I type out the recap and then I have to go back because it's been, for whatever reason, a delay in my watching mm. i i missed touch with some of the character focus and i think that if i had given my thoughts on the characters if we had recorded last week after i had completed it mm. i'd be saying a lot much like worse like or i'd have le- less talking points than i did about addressed on the huntsman than i didn't hear mm. because of i i still think the story is kind of boring um mm. like i'm still not sold on romana like we're halfway through now, and then obviously, as you say with the trivia, there's the whole thing. It was written for Mary's version of Romana, and we have Lala not in her first time doing it. So even though we've technically seen her, this is her her time. It's her first time doing it, and you know she's trying to find her feet for a character that wasn't written for her. That type of scenario. Um, the new K nine voice it it takes you out of that immersion. I. Like it's, I don't get drawn in. I don't feel attachment to the character because the voice just kind of pushes me away. I do mm. see it now as a prop, as opposed to a living thing that John Leeson mm. made it into. Um, the wolf weeds were stupid. Like they, they're just they are ridiculous. Um, mm. but the things that I liked were I liked the doctor in the story. I liked the morally dubious nature of Erato and everything that like it represent like Erato's imprisonment represented. Mm. Uh, I liked Adrasta and the Huntsman and what we're able to learn about the about the current political climate on Chloris through them. Mm. I liked that. And like at one point this story was writing at a one. And I I put it to a 1.5 because I don't know if I'll ever go back and rewatch this again. And mm. if I do, I'll probably only go back to rewatch it for Adrasta scenes. Or like Adrasta and the Doctor. Mm. Okay, not a great result from you. Um, I agree with a lot of what you said. Mm-hmm. I too found the story to have... I mean, the core concept of it. Adrasta... Mm. Eratu, that whole bit. Brilliant. Yeah. Love the mm. story concept. And I liked their scenes. Yeah. And their interactions. The Huntsman, like I said, once we got to that end point, I was like, oh, I can see why Paddy wanted to discuss him. Yeah. Bring me to the fold. And the Doctor was a good portrayal of the Doctor. Um, however, for me as well, it was kind of boring. Not as boring as I found City of Death, I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Um... I found it a bit more engaging because Adrasta was in it more. 
Mm-hmm. Do you know it, it cut to her quite regularly, so she kept my interest. Um, but the bits I didn't like about it, I'm not liking Romana two. I don't like Romana two. Trying to do Romana one and failing at it. K nine isn't K nine. Like you said, it's mm-hmm. a prop now. Mm-hmm. There's no heart. There's no soul in it. The weird fucking weeds was weird. But uh, to be honest, I I could take or leave those. I'd like they weren't really a story point. The same as like the design of the Eratu was crap. I don't really care. Those didn't really take me out of it. The biggest thing that took me out of it was the fucking Fagin fucking storyline with yeah. the bandits. Like the bandits part, and then the sort of oh shit, we still have twenty minutes left in the story. Oh, there's a neutron star going to hit the planet. Those two bits I could have done without. Um, I think had they kept the story tighter, have it just be the what is the creature, the slow reveal, the slow unraveling of Adrasta's plans and whatever. The bandits serve no value. I fucking hated when we kept jumping back to them because I'm like, they're not adding to the plot. They're literally just there to fill time. And then the whole neutron start at the end is there to A, make Eratu a little bit morally ambiguous. But it's also like, oh, we still have fifteen minutes left. We need to fill it with something. Like the, the only the only reason the only thing that they serve in terms of the plot progression is to get the place down to a rattle so that he can actually use his communicator. But there could have been another way to get that done. Yeah. Um and for all that they were in it, for that to be all that they deliver, I think was a waste of time. So, you know, I will say that the discussion of it has been great. Mm. Um, I think it's probably the most interesting discussion we've had in a while. Mm. Um, yeah. But my score hasn't really changed. I gave it a two last night, and I give it a two now. Mm. Um, you know, I think Adrasta is awesome. I think if you want to see a strong female villain in Doctor Who, it's a good choice for yeah, that. Definitely. Um, I think if you want to, you know, Tom back on form. I think it's a good choice for that. I think it's a David Fisher script. I think it's a Christopher Barry directing option. There's bits of both of them that were done mm. quite well. Um, mm. But I think as an overall package, it's a bit meh. Yeah. I think it tried to do too much. I think it changed too much, i.e. Roman and K9. Mm. Um, and it, it tried to be too many things. If it was just a weird sort of snow white meets the creature from the deep mm. it would have been better mm-hmm. um so yeah i give it a two um so so far season 17 is not performing well at all um no. <laughs> so your average for the season is a two and mine is a 1.92 now, there's still a couple more stories to go, mm. but scrolling back up, it is actually our lowest ranked season so far. And there have been some fuckers in the past. Mm. Um, I'm looking at you, season three. Um, but there are still a few stories that can cover it. And hopefully it will. Um, season 15 also jumped off the edge of the world there um so we'll have to see but currently i think we haven't been impressed no and again it's not because we have 
you know, stuck our fucking heels in and we're like, no, we're not going to like anything that's new or anything like that. We want to keep, en- mm. we want to keep liking the shows that goes on. We want to keep enjoying the new characters that come in or the new representations that come in. They're just not hitting. They, yeah. they, they just aren't hitting. And like we talked about, like we have Christopher Barry, one of our favorite directors mm. who has directed a lot of our favorite stories. We have yeah. David Fisher, who wrote two back-to-back amazing stories mm-hmm. in in the previous season. And, like, you would think it could be a dream combination. It just didn't work out, you know? As I yeah. said, elements of it, like the world that David created, the characters of Adrast and the Huntsman, absolutely. Mm-hmm. The character Chris- of Aratu, if not necessarily the... yeah. Portrayal. Yeah, oh, absolutely. The, the character, absolutely. Um, Christopher's direction for um, Myra, for mm. Adrasta, amazing. So good. So, like, yeah, elements and components got it, the scores for me, and obviously the same for the scores for you as well. Yeah. Now, we do still have three more stories this season. So, we have Nightmare of Eden, The Horns of Niman, and Shada. Mm-hmm. We are doing Shada as if it's an episode part of the season. Part, part of the season. Um, because we both have the Blu-ray release and it is included as standard on that. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, next week we have Nightmare of Eden. I know nothing about it. Um, but, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll get back up. I mean, Nightmare of Eden is... Let's have a quick look ahead. It's a Bob Baker on his own. Mm. Hmm. This is going to be interesting. Yeah. The Bob Baker Dave Martin duo has been a bit mm. weird. Yeah. That's a good word. I am now very, very curious to know is the weirdness Bob or is it Dave? <laughs> because, like, looking at their previous stories, it starts at the Claws of Axos, dude. Like, fucking trip like but also the three doctors Sontaran, Hand mm. of Fear there's, there's some great stories that yeah. they've done it's been a bit of a, a mixed bag um, but like I said next week is going to be Bob on his own so and kind of similar to this one uh, like, as Gandalf would say I have no memory of this place I can't mm. remember a single thing about next week's story <laughs> That's for next week. For now, Mm -hmm. though, guys, I hope you have a good week. Mm -hmm. And yeah, hopefully next week will be better. (laughs) Yes. Hopefully we'll uh, we'll get back to a regular uh, schedule. And as always, thoughts, you know, if you have thoughts or if you have any agreements or disagreements or anything like that, please send them on to us so that we can discuss it. Because that's, as Trish said, we love the discussion as much as we love the stories themselves. Yeah. Definitely. Until then, though. Bye. Bye.